After the success of the uh, Apollo 11 mission, which was a space flight that landed the first humans on the moon in June of 1969, uh, many of you know more, far more about that than I do because you were a part of uh, helping make that happen. But in the wake of that, astronaut Michael Collins said that all of this is possible only through the blood, sweat, and tears of thousands of people. He said, all you see are the three of us. Collins, of course, referring to himself and to Buzz Aldrin and to Neil Armstrong. He says, but underneath the surface, there are thousands and thousands of others who help make this possible. And that, that was certainly true. According to the author, Catherine Themish, uh, she estimates that there were approximately 400,000 people who helped make the Apollo 11 mission a success. And Themish has written a, a great deal about some of these hidden heroes. She talks about the, the spacesuit seamstresses who worked on sewing those suits together. She talks about the radio telescope operators, the parachute designers, and countless others who made it possible to, to get those astronauts to the moon, to get them back safely, and then wonder of wonders to have it all televised so that the world could watch. At Kennedy Space Center alone, there were over 17,000 engineers and mechanics and soldiers and contractors and others who, who just set up the area for the launch. The computer program uh, that was used was developed by a group of software engineers at MIT. There were people watching things, you just don't even think about it. The, the control panel in Houston, there were people watching the, the fuel levels. Uh, of the lunar module during its descent. There was a computer whiz by the name of Jack Garman who uh, helped work through the numerous computer glitches during the Eagle's landing. And there were roughly 500 people who worked on the spacesuits, who worked on knitting those together, including one seamstress who commented, she says, we didn't worry too much until we were watching television and we saw the guys jumping up and down on the surface of the moon. <laughs> She said that's when we began to raise an eyebrow or two and think, I hope we did our jobs well. Is it any wonder then that Neil Armstrong would go on to comment and say that as he took those first steps on the moon, one of his first thoughts was the, the countless, the thousands, the 400,000 now that we know, of people who were helping make all of that possible. Cooperation was vital in order for the Apollo 11 mission to be a success. And we would say that the same is true for the mission that we've been given, that cooperation is vital for this spiritual mission that we've been given. So last week, in this Walking Together series, we talked about the mission of Jesus, and we looked at his own words from the gospel, how Jesus said that he came to serve, not to be served, but to pour himself out as, as a servant, to give his life as a ransom for many, we noted what Jesus says about coming to seek and save those who were lost as well. And the summary statement that Peter makes in Acts chapter 10 when he says that Jesus just went around doing good. And so because of that, we get a passage like Galatians 6 where we are instructed to not grow weary in doing good because, again, Jesus went around doing good. And as we talked about that mission, we, we noted that we had an opportunity to carry out that mission in a very specific way. One, one of the ways that was available to us last week, Lee has already mentioned it, but there were a thousand of these boxes, these boxes of blessings that were in the back of the room and they were out in the lobby. And, and you 
responded to, to that opportunity to live on mission in the way that you always do. You responded with such a cooperative spirit. You went and you got those boxes, and there were families that had five or ten or twelve. We had people calling throughout the week saying, I, you know, I wasn't there, but I heard about this, and can I, can I get my hands on a few more? And, and of course, as has already been mentioned, we have some of those available if you didn't get a chance to, to pick one up. But all of that, again, just underscores what we're talking about today, because without your cooperative spirit, those boxes would still be there. They'd still be in the back. They wouldn't be uh, being distributed in our community as a way of, of blessing others and as a way of opening up doors to be able to talk to people in this community about Jesus. That, that wouldn't have happened without that cooperative spirit. And that's the next of these core commitments that our elders have identified and that we are going to spend some time talking about here today. What happens in the body of Christ? What happens when God's people pull in the same direction? What happens when we work together to carry out this mission that he's given us? Well, great things happen to the glory of God when his people are focused on the right things and when they have that cooperative spirit moving among them. So you can see how this ties in with where we've been the last few weeks. We talked a couple of weeks ago about our unity and how even though we, we come from different perspectives and we have a variety of different experiences, none of those things, none of those differences are greater than that which bonds us together. And if we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, if that's what we share in common, if the blood of Jesus makes us family, that is great enough to trump any and all differences that we might have. So this cooperative spirit is just a natural outworking of, of that unity. But then also this, it ties in so well, again, with our, our mission. It's just a natural extension of that commitment to missional outreach because we are unified by our common mission. And the one thing that might keep us from achieving that is if, if we don't decide to work together, to cooperate together, to partner together in the great work that the Lord has given us. One text that kind of drives all this home and, and, and really gives us an anchor point here is found in the book of 2 Corinthians. If you have a Bible and you want to turn to 2 Corinthians, we'll read together from this great text in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is the chapter we'll spend some time looking at today. And at the beginning of that chapter, we find really, again, I think a, what is an unfortunate chapter break because... Throughout chapter 5, Paul has been talking about the ministry of reconciliation that we have been given. But then his so what, one of the, the main points of application actually is found there in chapter 6. And oftentimes if we just read chapter to chapter, we don't get this. But at the, at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul summarizes all of this and gives us kind of a, kind of a so what statement in 2 Corinthians 6 verses 1 and 2. This is what the text says. And working together with him, him of course being God, working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Paul's quoting there from Isaiah chapter 49. Then he says, behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So Paul is trying to mobilize this, this church to embrace the mission, to declare the news of salvation that is readily available in the present, present tense. He's saying we're living out the fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied. 
And so you look back into this ministry of reconciliation, and what he's saying is that, look, if we have been reconciled back to God through the redeeming work of Jesus, then we now become ministers of reconciliation. God makes an appeal through us. We become the declaration of what it looks like to be reconciled back to God. We are ambassadors for Christ, Paul says. And with all of this in mind, he then transitions into, into this teaching. All right? So we have, we've been reconciled, we've been given this ministry. If you want to tie it in with our language from last week, we've been given this mission. And then he says, now, working together with God, we urge you not to have received the grace of God in vain. In this verse, at the beginning, there are two English words working together. Two English words are used to translate one word in Greek. And that one word in Greek you see on the screen there, synergesia. We have an English word that we use quite often. It is a transliteration. It's just, you know, word for, letter for letter imported into our language. We use the word sometimes synergy. That's the word that Paul uses here. Uh, what is synergy? What are the contexts in which we use that word? Well, in athletics, you might talk about a, a pitcher and a catcher who work well together. They have great synergy. You might talk about a quarterback and a wide receiver having synergy in, the, in, in, in your business environment. You might talk about a team that works really well together. And in fact, it might be one of those deals where the sum is greater, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, right? That's synergy. It's working together. It's cooperation. It's teamwork it's one of these situations where everybody comes together and agrees to work and and fulfill a certain role or, or the team operates in a particular way but it, it just it works there's this rhythm there's this momentum to it. it 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 has synergy because of the cooperation of all the members and that that is the word that paul uses here when he makes his great application based on what we've just heard about the ministry of reconciliation, literally what it says, he says, synergizing, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In the translation, the English translation, translation that I had on the screen a moment ago, it actually said, you know, working with him, working together with him, the him being God. But, but with him is actually an interpreter's decision. That's not in the original text there if you want to know like literally what he says he says synergizing together synergizing we work and urge you to this end that's why the message translation translates this this verse this way and really kind of captures the heart of this passage it says companions as we are in this work with you we beg you please don't squander one bit of this marvelous life god has given us this is the cooperative spirit that we're talking about here this morning this cooperative synergy that god intends to be present in the body of christ and that's that's really the new testament metaphor for this kind of synergy it's the body of christ repeatedly throughout the scriptures the new testament writers come back to this idea god directs us to think about the human body as, as a demonstration of what happens in the spiritual body, in the church body. So the body, of course, is comprised of many different parts, separate parts that are united together as a whole. 
And what we find here in the scriptures, we find the New Testament writers paralleling this working together, this cooperation, this synergy that happens in the physical body. They parallel that and they say, okay, this is the way God wants it to be in the spiritual body, in the family of God, in the body of Christ. He wants there to be great synergy and working together as well. Different parts, but united together as one whole. The human body, they say, is comprised of 37 trillion different cells. And that gives us this glorious, I would say even a miraculous little parable to understand the great degree of unity and synergy and cooperation that God intends for there to be present in the spiritual body. 37 trillion cells in your body and my body, and yet God looks at that and he says, okay, what I want for my people, I want them to be unified together as one body. That's synergy. That's cooperation. That's the cooperative spirit that God wants for his people. And why does God want that? Well, according to the scriptures, God is himself a God of synergy. Romans 8, 28 says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's one of those well-known passages of scripture. But literally what it says, it literally says that God synergizes all into good. That's literally what it says. Same word, okay? So our, our, our idea here of, of working together and and, and cooperating. It, what it says there is that God is a God of synergy because he does this. He takes the circumstances in our lives and he brings them together. He works together with them. He synergizes those together for good for his people. In fact, I think you can say that God's synergy is always focused on bringing about something good because, because our God is good, because our God is a God of synergy. And because God is working to bring about this ultimate sense of redemption that all of these texts point to. And so that's how all of this cooperative spirit language, how that ties in with, with our mission. God is actively synergizing us as the body of Christ. He's working together in us to bring about good. Again, Jesus went around doing good, Simon Peter says. And so because of that, we as the body of Christ are to never grow weary in doing good. That's the outcome of this cooperative spirit. So several weeks ago, I received a note in the mail saying that I'd been selected for jury duty. Some of you had that privilege. So I, you know, this was kind of all new to me. So I got this note in the mail saying you've been selected for jury duty. So I reported at uh, Monday morning, 8 o'clock, was down at Madison County Courthouse, uh, along with 300 other fine, upstanding citizens, and they told us that uh, jury service was one of the most important duties, uh, that, you know, one of your most important civic duties that you can ever perform. That's what they told us. Um, I personally was told that I was a vital component to the slow-turning wheels of justice, so I have that going for me, too. Um, in the state of Alabama, depending on the case, uh, the jury either needs to come back with a unanimous decision uh, or in, in other cases, maybe just a, a, a majority decision. But either way, there needs to be a, a high level of cooperation among jury members. They want to be sure you can work together to reach some sort of consensus. The last thing they want is a mistrial, hung jury, and they move on. So, 
So they took about 30 of us at a time into the courtroom. And uh, so 30 of us, we go in there and we sit down and we hear all the details about the case. And the attorneys ask us a series of questions. Uh, they wanted to determine, you know, would we be able to, to serve? You know, who would be selected to serve on this particular jury based on this or that? And, and I just happened to be put in the same group with two people that I knew. One uh, is a lady by the name of Natasha Williams. She's a sixth grade teacher at Madison Academy, right? And the other is my brother Bill Putman, who's seated right here, all by himself. Nobody else is even around him. So, Bill, I'm sorry. I, I knew I was going to tell this on you, but man, everybody knows exactly where you are now, all right? So, uh, so, I'm, so I'm put in this group of 30 with Miss Williams and with Bill. And so, toward the end, the judge gets up, and, and uh, you know, after the attorneys have kind of done their whole song and dance, uh, the, the judge then says to the potential jurors, he says, okay, I need to know if any of you know one another. And, you know, they, they just need to know if there's any kind of relationships within the potential jurors. So before I could say anything, Miss Williams, school teacher, you know, she shot her hand up, said, Your Honor, Your Honor. And he called on her and she stood up and said, I just need to tell you, I know Mr. Bybee. I, I, was, I taught his children in school and, you know, you just need to know that. He said, okay, well, thank you, Miss Williams. And, and the judge said, now, I need to know, Miss Williams, that the fact that you know Mr. Bybee, would that put any kind of, like, Influ like, would you be unduly influenced by him? You know, would that cause you in any way? To, would that impair your judgment in this case? Would that keep you from hearing the details of this case and coming up with your own decision uh, if it come, came down to it? And she said, no, Your Honor, I, I don't think so. I think that'd be fine. She said, okay, well, thank you, Miss Williams. You can have a seat. And so the judge said, okay, that was good. That was helpful. Now, anybody else, do you know any, any, anybody? And again, before I could say anything, Bill kind of looked over at me, and then he shot his hand up and said, hey, Your Honor, um, and so, yes, Mr. Putman, so Bill stood up and he said, uh, yeah, I know Mr. Bybee too. <laughs> and the judge looks back at me and he says, well, looks like our Mr. Bybee's a pretty popular man, you know. <laughs> I know two people at the courthouse, they just happen to be in this group with me, you know. And so, well, Mr. Putman, please, by all means, tell us, how do you know Mr. Bybee? He says, well, he's my preacher. And the judge said, okay, well, thank you for telling us that, Mr. Putman. Now, I need to ask you the same question. Uh, now, the fact that you know Mr. Bybee, would you be unduly influenced by him? Would you, you know, would this impair your judgment on this case? Would you be more likely to listen to him than someone else if it came down to it? And without missing a beat, Bill sat there and said, no, Your Honor, I wouldn't listen to anything he has to say at all. <laughs> Not a problem at all. <laughs> Some of you are like, amen, right? <laughs> so it's no surprise that neither one of us were selected for jury duty that go-around, right? Instead, uh, we went and had lunch together, and it was great. So, all right, so listen, whether it's jury duty, or putting a man on the moon, or your athletic team, you know, a ball team, your work environment, or the body of Christ, a cooperative spirit is vital, right? I mean, you just can't get around it. Whether, we're talking about any of that, a cooperative spirit is so so key. We mentioned a moment ago that uh, the human body is made up of approximately 37 trillion cells. I can't even begin to wrap my mind around that number. Can you? I mean, that's a, that's a lot. The best I could do is this. That's uh, nearly one cell for every dollar we're in debt uh, as a nation. All right. That's as close as I can come and try to find a connection to that. Uh, but 37 trillion cells. Usually those cells work together in harmony, right? They divide when they're supposed to divide. They're controlled. They do what they're supposed to do. Normally, under normal circumstances, those 37 trillion cells operate in harmony and unity and together. 
What do you call it when cells decide to go rogue? You know, right? What do you call it when those cells decide to divide at an abnormal rate? When they decide to divide more quickly, when they begin to invade tissue, you call that cancer, right? And what's true for the physical body is also true for the spiritual body. It's also true for the body of Christ. And the New Testament is filled with these texts that describe the kinds of things we need to be on guard against, the kinds of cancers, if you will, that we as the people of God need to be on guard against. Uh, There are over 20 of these what were called vice lists. We read them and it's just, you know, hey, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. And usually contrasted with what's referred to as those virtue lists. So so the New Testament writers would say, okay, you want to follow Jesus, you want to be a Christian, you want to give your life to him, here's some things that that means, you know, behavior-wise, we're not this, because these things aren't becoming of, of the people of God. But, but on the other hand, here's what we focus on. This is what we ought to be about. And these vice lists, you can think of those as some of the cancers that can kill our synergy in the body of Christ. And in those 20 lists, these are just a few of the things that are, these are kind of the greatest hits of those, those 20 vice lists. You can see those things on there. I'm not going to read that whole list to you. But God says that these are the kinds of things that he doesn't want to be present in the body of Christ. Not because he's trying to somehow restrict our lives. On the contrary, God wants us to have life and to have it to the full. He wants us to have this abundant life. It's just that God knows that these sorts of actions and patterns of thought, these kinds of behaviors, threaten the cooperative synergy that he wants us to possess. So that's why these kinds of things are are warned against so strongly. Because they're bad for us individually, yes. They're also bad for us corporately. They can kill our synergy. But when the body of Christ is animated by this cooperative spirit, great things can happen. So, we'll close here. What can we do to cultivate this kind of of cooperative synergy, this cooperative spirit that we read about in the New Testament? Well, there are a lot of of ways we could answer that, but I just identified a couple here to kind of get us, get our thought process going, and then we'll wind down. Uh, First is this, we can can cultivate that cooperative synergy when, when we don't always assume the worst when it comes to our spiritual family. Um, we live in, in, a, in an interesting time, don't we? We live in a culture, we live in a burn-the-witch culture. You know what I mean by that? I mean, we live in a, in a culture in a time where it's just commonplace for, for people to be skewered, you know, we'll kind of just throw hot takes at each other for a variety of things. You know, we have differences uh, politically or or when it comes to social issues or whatever but uh, inevitably what I think happens is that that has found its way into the church and probably not the church you know around the world as much as the church here in the United States this seems to be kind of a uniquely American sort of deal you know but here's the thing family members give each other the benefit of the doubt don't they? Family members 
at least in my family, you get the benefit of the doubt if you're in my family. That doesn't mean we always see eye to eye. I could walk through and tell you all the things in my family, same as yours. We have differences of opinion. We talk about things and we don't always agree. Nobody says that. That's not unity, by the way. That's not. Unity and uniformity, different things. But what it means is that as a family, if we're going to use that, if if that metaphor is going to have any kind of currency for us, what it means is that we stop assuming the worst out of each other. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, the New King James Version. Love suffers long, verse 4. That, that hits me in a little deeper way than just love is patient. Right? Love suffers long. It suffers much. It puts up with so much. And I think we need to be reminded of our identity as people of love. We are people who have been shaped by the love of Jesus Christ. We have been shaped by the love of God expressed to us through Christ. And that then, in turn, shapes the way we love one another, the way we treat one another. And so if we want to have that cooperative spirit we read about there in the New Testament, I think it begins here. We need to remember that we are people of love. And so that means the pessimism and the negativity and the slanderous gossip, we call those what they are. They are cancers in the body of Christ. And they have no place in our midst. Paul goes on in that same teaching to say that love always hopes can't be negative pessimistic gossiping you can't be running each other down and be people of hope you just can't people of hope give each other the benefit of the doubt we expect the best from one another we can call each other to account for that we can hold each other accountable in fact we're called to we're duty bound to do that but it also means that we just we stop assuming the worst out of each other and we start treating each other like family that's one this one's a little more positive We laugh together. We can cultivate that synergy simply by just laughing together. You know, church is not supposed to be a funeral service. It's just not. Jesus did not come to earth so that we could get together every Sunday and hold a funeral for him. He didn't. If anybody that has ever lived deserves to not have a funeral in his name, it's Jesus, right? So, Let's just get, kind of get that point on the board. That, doesn't, that it does not mean we get together and that, that there's any kind of irreverent, uh, you know, kind of stepping out of bounds when it comes to our understanding that who God is and who we are. That is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we have permission to do that. I'm just saying that when we gather together, there ought to be a spirit of joy that moves in our midst. Why does the early, why does the early church meet on Sunday mornings? Some would say, well, it's because it's commanded. Well, There's a practice that predated the command, though. And that practice was based on the fact that Sunday was the day of joy. Sunday was the day he rose from the grave. And they got together on Sunday to celebrate in a spirit of joy. You ever look around the room when we sing that song, The Joy of the Lord is My Strength? (laughs) I'm stepping on toes now. I think we ought to outlaw that song until we're ready to really mean it. You know, as I'm as guilty as anybody, I'll sing that song and I'll just go through the motions. I think the joy of the Lord will be my strength. And I'm like 
anything but joyful, right? <laughs> there ought to be a spirit of joy moving among us as God's people and when we gather together. And joy is expressed as laughter. Healthy churches are filled with laughter. I just came from the gym. We had our baby day reception. And I don't know how many babies there were. They're being passed around left and right. And everybody's holding burp cloths, getting spit up on, changing diapers. Nobody cared, right? Because there was such joy in that room. There's something that brings a smile to even the grouchiest person's face when you see a, a, a babe being held by mom and dad. And boy, I wish we could just bottle up some of that joy and have it when we come together. I think we probably get high marks in many regards for sending the gospel around the world. We found some innovative ways to do that. I'm not trying to boast. I'm just saying I, th I think we focus a lot of energy and effort there. And I, I think we do okay. Maybe we need to find some time to be together and fellowship and laugh and just remember that, we're, again, we're family. If we do that, I think we'd be a lot less skeptical of one another. Be a lot less reservations across those generational divides we talked about a few weeks ago. Maybe that joy is the answer to some of what plagues us. I know it would feed into that synergy that the New Testament talks about. Two more and then we're done. I don't have an axe to grind here. It's not an issue that I'm trying to like covertly point out. And I don't have anybody in particular in mind here, okay? So all that qualifies this. But this synergy, this cooperative synergy comes when we, as, the, as the, the people who make up this church family, follow the lead of our elders, the men that God has selected and put out front to lead this church. For nearly 70 years, Mayfair has been blessed by the shepherding leadership of our elders. And these men and their wives have loved this church they have prayed for this church. And we mentioned Malcolm this morning, Malcolm and Madeline, and how we, we want to now focus on them and love them well, pray for them. <laughs> Denton was talking a moment ago, it struck me that Malcolm has been an elder in this church longer than I've been alive. <laughs> Puts things in perspective for me. This time of year, I always think of Paul Kelly and George Smith because it was April. That was the month that we lost them a few years ago. And those are just two men. You know, those are just a couple of names of, of those who over the years have answered that call of leadership and, and, and stepped in and, and led this church. And I just, I just want to say that cooperative synergy comes when we recognize that. We recognize the burden of leadership that these men have. And when we say, we trust you. And we're following you and we're praying for you and we love you. Boy, that, that has to be the kind of thing that is an encouragement to the leaders of this church. And I know it feeds that cooperative synergy. Lastly, that cooperative synergy comes when we personalize the mission. What I mean by that is that Jesus calls us to make disciples. We know that, absolutely. But Jesus calls you to make disciples. He calls me to make disciples. As we mentioned a moment ago, we're, we're family, that is certainly true, but we're also, we're also companions in this mission. And so our, our synergy must always lead to service, but, but only if each one of us are fully bought in. And so 
the mission of Jesus, the mission Jesus left us. It has to become my mission, and it has to become your mission if it ever has a chance of becoming our mission. We need to be on the same page about what our mission is. In the end, this cooperative synergy is really our decision. We have a decision if we're going to go rogue, <laughs> operate like cancer cells, or instead to have this cooperative spirit, this synergy to pull in the same direction for the glory of God. The choice really is yours and mine. We close out this time by offering the invitation of Jesus Christ. And it is another opportunity for decision to be made. Maybe today, the decision that needs to be made, you need to share with your church family something that's on your heart. Maybe you need to pray with some of these shepherds who you'll see up front and in the back. If so, we would encourage that. But maybe today, the decision you need to make is one of even greater magnitude. Maybe today, you need to put Christ on in baptism. Maybe today, you need to accept his call of discipleship and begin that life of following after him. If so, I hope that you would do that as well. Whatever the need might be, I hope that you will respond to his call while we stand and sing this song of invitation together.